I walked about on the shore, lifting up my hands and my whole being, as I may say, wrapped up in the contemplation of my deliverance, making a thousand gestures and motions which I cannot describe, reflecting upon all my comrades that were drowned, and that there should not be one soul saved but myself. For as for them, I never saw them afterwards or any sign of them, except three of their hats, one cap, and two shoes that were not fellows. In all of literature, Robinson Crusoe is certainly among the most isolated of characters. Dude was stranded on an island for 28 years. He was on his shitty little way to Africa to buy enslaved people to work his sugarcane plantation back in Brazil when his ship was wrecked. Crusoe finds himself the sole survivor, alive but alone on a desert island in the Caribbean. Luckily for him, the wreck of the ship washes up not too far from shore, and Crusoe manages to scavenge a whole range of conveniently handy supplies, from guns to seeds, that keep him alive for almost three decades. For most of that time, he is entirely alone, except for his pets and God, who is a notoriously bad conversationalist. But was Crusoe lonely? I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a podcast about art that addresses the most pressing social and political issues of our time. Under normal circumstances, we chat with contemporary artists about their work, but this season, nothing is normal. So we're departing from our usual format and instead focusing on art that deals with the themes of isolation, quarantine, and loneliness. I had never read Robinson Crusoe before, and I guess I was expecting like more reflection on what two plus decades of solitude is like and less about basket weaving. When I think of a diary, which is essentially what Crusoe kept those many years, I think of interiority, a safe space where you fill blank pages with your deepest thoughts and feelings and the girls you have crushes on. And there's some of that, like when Crusoe reflects on his relationship with God and about what a jerk he was to his parents. But for the most part, he just lists his many accomplishments. You know this guy. You've been trapped talking to him at a party. James Joyce felt similarly. Here's what he had to say. The true symbol of the British conquest is Robinson Crusoe, who, cast away on a desert island, in his pocket a knife and a pipe, becomes an architect, a carpenter, a knife grinder, an astronomer, a baker, a shipwright, a potter, a saddler, a farmer, a tailor, an umbrella maker, and a clergyman. He is the true prototype of the British colonist, as Friday, the trusty savage who arrives on an unlucky day, is the symbol of the subject races. So Crusoe basically manages to recreate the entirety of Western civilization by himself. Maximilian Novak, a distinguished professor emeritus at UCLA and a leading Daniel Defoe scholar, argues that Crusoe got really into bread baking and pottery not just as a means for survival, but to distract himself from his loneliness. And frankly, Dr. Novak, you don't know me. He became a farmer, a potter, and a weaver of baskets all at once. So much is done to avoid the very sense of, of loneliness. Uh, all that he manages to do to occupy himself so that he, for the most part, doesn't uh, focus upon it. But it's always there. But in the Times Literary Supplement from May 29th, writer Adam Foulds argues that Crusoe wasn't lonely at all. 
He writes, until 200 years ago, the notion of loneliness barely existed. The word did, but it was synonymous with solitude and had no emotional connotation. Not until the turn of the 19th century did it acquire the familiar meaning. Byron's child Harold uses the word, but Robinson Crusoe, in all his solitude, never once complains of loneliness. Adam Foles needs to reread Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. This is John Ricchetti, a retired professor at UPenn who has written several volumes on Daniel Defoe. He wrote a letter to the editor in response to the article by Adam Folds. He notes that Robinson Crusoe, in all his solitude, never once complains of loneliness, close quote. It is true that he never uses the word, but in fact, he dwells on the pains of his isolation on the island. Some 24 years after he is shipwrecked on the island, he describes a storm in which a ship is wrecked not far from his island, but he is devastated to find that there are no survivors. His reflections make it clear that he suffers from loneliness. Quote, oh, that there had been but one or two, nay, or but one soul saved out of this ship to have escaped to me, that I might but have had one companion, one fellow creature to have spoken to me, and to have conversed with. In all the time of my solitary life, I never felt so earnest, so strong a desire after the society of my fellow creatures, so deep a regret at the want of it. And a paragraph later, he repeats himself in even more intense fashion, quote, Oh, that it had been but one. I believe I repeated the words, Oh, that it had been but one a thousand times. So Adam Fould says Crusoe couldn't have been lonely because the concept of loneliness hadn't been invented in 1791. John Ricchetti says just because the word lonely wasn't in use as we know it today doesn't mean that people, including Crusoe, didn't experience loneliness. I checked in with Jesse Scheidlauer, who is the only bartender I know who was also an editor for the Oxford English Dictionary. He said that it is true that the words lonely and loneliness only started to suggest a bereft emotional state in the 1810s, when the romantics were mooning about. Before then, loneliness just meant being physically alone, like far away from people. But Jesse says, and I'll quote him here, Conflating a thing with the word used to describe it is always dangerous. It can be true that words arise when they are needed, and that the existence of a word shows that the concept is itself new or newly important. But this isn't necessarily the case. There are many concepts that are important, but don't have English words to describe them. Jesse goes on to point out that the word homosexual was first recorded in English in 1891, which has caused some people to argue entirely seriously that homosexuality didn't exist before the late 19th century. So. I guess it's possible that the emotional state of loneliness, a feeling anguish or depression because you're apart from other people, didn't exist before Byron and Wordsworth. But then how would you describe what Crusoe is feeling as he cries, oh, that it had been but one? A sense of loneliness also suffuses Elizabeth Bishop's 1971 poem, Crusoe in England. Written in the voice of an elderly Robinson, bored and drinking real tea back in England. 
A new volcano has erupted, the papers say, and last week I was reading where some ships saw an island being born. At first a breath of steam ten miles away, and then a black fleck, basalt probably, rose in the mate's binoculars and caught on the horizon like a fly. They named it, but my poor old island's still unrediscovered, unrenameable. None of the books has ever got it right. Bishops Crusoe writes of lumbering sea turtles hissing like tea kettles, hot lava hitting cold ocean hissing like sea turtles. Glass chimneys, flexible, attenuated, sacerdotal beings of glass. I watch the water spiral up in them like smoke. Beautiful, yes, but not much company. I often gave way to self-pity. Do I deserve this? I suppose I must. I wouldn't be here otherwise. Was there a moment when I actually chose this? I don't remember, but there could have been. What's wrong about self-pity anyway? I tend to look at things through a queer lens anyway, but this poem is really gay. Elizabeth Bishop, alone and self-pitying on an island of her own choosing. Beautiful, but without much company. Just when I thought I couldn't stand it another minute longer, Friday came. Accounts of that have everything all wrong. Friday was nice. Friday was nice, and we were friends. If only he had been a woman. I wanted to propagate my kind, and so did he, I think, poor boy. He'd pet the baby goat sometimes and race with them or carry one around. Pretty to watch. He had a pretty body. So gay. Friday was nice. Friday was nice, and we were friends. It's the most poignant expression of repressed homosexuality since Bert and Ernie. Bishop's lonely, solitary misfit has found a friend, and his only sadness is that they weren't able to procreate. But Crusoe and Friday are rescued, both in the book and in Bishop's poem. Crusoe once again finds himself suffering from loneliness. Even the objects that were his only companions have forsaken him. The knife there on the shelf, it reeked of meaning like a crucifix. It lived. How many years did I beg it, implore it, not to break? I knew each nick and scratch by heart, the bluish blade, the broken tip, the lines of wood grain on the handle. Now it won't look at me at all. The living soul has dribbled away. My eyes rest on it and pass on. The local museums asked me to leave everything to them, the flute, the knife, the shriveled shoes, my shedding goatskin trousers, moths have got in the fur, the parasol that took me such a time remembering the way the ribs should go. It still will work, but folded up looks like a plucked and skinny fowl. How can anyone want such things? And Friday, my dear Friday, died of measles 17 years ago come March. Bishop wrote Crusoe in England a few years after the suicide of her partner, the Brazilian architect Lota de Macedo Soare. Soare's birthday was in March. If she had lived to see one more birthday, she and Bishop would have been together 17 years. It's impossible to talk about Crusoe's solitude without discussing the end of it, the point at which he meets Friday. Friday is an indigenous person from a neighboring island, and Crusoe rescues him as he's about to be killed and eaten by cannibals. 
This part of the book was really difficult for me to read. It's riddled with noble savage stereotypes, and Friday is basically Crusoe's willing slave. It doesn't age well. I raised these questions with Maximilian Novak, who we heard from at the beginning. There's much in Robinson Crusoe that does not stand the test of time. We could see Robinson Crusoe as a, as a colonizer who is a proponent of manifest destiny and feels like all of the black and brown people are, need to be civilized and brought to God. I think that is a, uh, a wrong way of, of reading. Friday is his friend. He also thinks of getting someone like Friday as a slave, but it's not the way things actually develop. Uh, Friday becomes his companion in hunting. Friday uh, discusses uh, things with him, discusses religion with him. Crusoe worries that he may want to leave uh, to go to uh, the mainland, which is in the distance. And Friday, of course, is, weeps affectionately and says no. There is something like a real, a real friendship that exists between Friday and Crusoe. It, it does seem to me that uh, it's a naive reading to see it in those terms. Hmm. Hmm. I called up Velashni Kupan, professor of literature and critical race and ethnic studies at the University of California at Santa Cruz, and asked her what she thought of Maximilian Novak's interpretation. I don't agree with that reading, and I, I don't agree with it because novels are never in the business of showing, quote-unquote, real <laughs> uh, real friendship, real love. They're always fictionalizing reality, which is to say they're creating a particular version of it, and part of the work of literary criticism is seeing how that version is produced by the language of the novel and by its particular, you know, strategies of representation and what work that representation does. Uh, Edward Said, the postcolonial critic, said famously, and I'm sure your other interlocutor wouldn't like this, that it would be impossible to imagine imperialism without the novel, that the two were similar endeavors in creating representational dominion. It's a text that is such a huge part of our cultural mythology of solitude, of islands, of uh, how we think about economic life, about how we think about society. And we think that the story is, okay, a man, an island, long isolation, encounter with one person and rescue. And Actually, it's a much more social and political story than that. And I think we have to put all of that into context before we can then come back to this story we think we know and then see that its underside is the larger story of slavery and colonialism. We selected this novel because our current season is dealing with themes of isolation and quarantine and art. And that was my cultural impression of the novel was that I would be reading about a man alone on an island. But actually, as you said, it's sort of the story of like cultural imperialism. And he manages to recreate the entirety of Western civilization on his own on an island. He's planting corn that he has rescued from the wreck. He's learning how to do earthenware pottery. Ultimately, once he has built upon all of these smaller steps and has domesticated animals and made cheese, the next logical step is for him to bring salvation to 
the savage races. Exactly. Well, and that's why I think, and you captured so much of the quality of the novel, which reads um, sometimes like a how-to manual, right? How to cut things down, how to bake bread. I mean, it can sometimes be quite deadening in its um, in its factual veracity. So it's interesting to me that this novel that we often go back to as a, a primer on isolation, uh, it, it is the you know, the DNA of Gilligan's Island or Castaway or Survivor's Marquesa Island edition or so many other stories, even though it's seen as a primer of isolation, what we, I think, forget or don't always know is that it's a novel about that fever dream of colonialism. But when he first meets Friday, Crusoe smiles at him, looks at him, gestures at him to be to come closer. And eventually Friday kneels down, crisses the ground, puts his head upon the ground and takes Crusoe's foot and puts it upon his head. And in the narrative, it says this, it seems, was in token of swearing to be my slave forever. One way to think about the novel is how it gives us a language to understand what some critics call the fantasy work of empire, right? That scene of Friday willingly placing Crusoe's foot upon his head is a a dream of capitalism and a dream of racial capitalism in particular that its subjects are asking to be ruled. At one point, Crusoe says he's going to send Friday back to his community, and Friday gives him an axe and says, take this axe. And Crusoe says, why? What should I do with it? And he says, take, kill Friday, no send Friday away. And this is another one of those fantasy moments where the subject, the slave, is saying, I would rather be your slave than die alone. What would empire want more than imperial sovereignty? Imperial sovereignty over people who wanted to be ruled. BRB gotta go scream into the void. There's an interesting figure in the novel, Paul the Parrot, who Crusoe captures and teaches to speak, specifically the catchphrase, poor Robinson Crusoe. If you think about this story as a fever dream of colonialism, as Velashny says, then the arrival of Friday isn't some major turning point where before Crusoe was lonely and now he has a human companion. In this reading, Friday is just another animal to domesticate as Crusoe establishes his dominion over the island and all creatures on it. Derek Walcott, the Caribbean poet and Nobel laureate, who I must mention also was found to have sexually harassed several students, wrote about this in his poem, Crusoe's Journal. Like Christopher, he bears in speech mnemonic as a missionary's the word to savages. Its shape an earthen, water-bearing vessels whose sprinkling alters us into Good Fridays who recite his praise, parroting our master's style and voice. We make his language ours, converted cannibals, we learn with him to eat the flesh of Christ. The parrot has learned it so perfectly that he would come and cry, poor Robinson Crusoe, where are you? Where have you been? How come you here? Which is, of course, Crusoe's own question, the thing he wrestles with day and night. What is, I think, significant is that this exchange with the parrot sets up for Crusoe a model of isolation that is about turning the entire world around you into an extension of yourself. The parrot says to him what he says to himself. It says his own name. It's a perfectly closed circuit. 
all you hear is what you want to hear. This is the same way in which Friday's speech, when he says, kill Friday, no send me away, no send Friday away, that returns to Crusoe what is Crusoe, namely his own sense of the rightness of his empire. And I think this is another way to think about what we want isolation to be in the time of COVID, which is also the time of Black Lives Matter. Do we want isolation to be an echo changer? in which we're literally only hearing the voices we've always constructed as true? Or do we want a kind of rupture of that circuit? And what do we have to do to hear something else being spoken in this moment? I think it's really incumbent to imagine how you break into that, how, do you, how you hear a voice in a way that is true to its separateness and distinctness to you, as opposed to these voices that say only what you want them to say or what you have taught them to say. I thought Robinson Crusoe was a COVID story about isolation and loneliness, but it's actually a Black Lives Matter story about slavery and systems of oppression and the constructed fiction of white supremacy. The idea that white people are superior to black and brown people That is a fiction, and someone had to write it. Glitter and Doom is hosted and produced by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It's produced and edited by Isabel Alcantara, and our executive producers are Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 